1: NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com/earnings right now, netsuite.com/earnings.
2: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
1: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the
3: Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast.
4: So what's the state of the uh, mysterious world of crypto now that you can jump in with an ETF? Sandy Call is head of digital asset in investor advisory services at Franklin Templeton. Um, our next guest, you know, Gary Gensler kind of uh, made it clear the regulatory approval of Bitcoin ETFs. That's no sort of implicit endorsement by um, the regulators. I imagine, though, that that hasn't dampened any of the enthusiasm, has it?
5: No, it definitely has not. Um, record launch for an ETF, over $3 billion in net new inflows into the products over the last just week.
1: And how do you view some of those inflows, though? I'm looking at Bloomberg data, BlackRock and Fidelity uh, dominating in terms of flows, both north of a billion. I'm looking at, at least according to the terminal, uh, Franklin Templeton closer to 50 million. So how does that
6: play out?
5: Yeah, I think that it depends who your audience is out of the gate. Um, Right now, you're seeing a lot of the direct uh, self-directed investors coming in uh, and accessing this for their own personal portfolios. Uh, moving these new products on to the wealth advisory platforms is going to take a few months as they do their due diligence, see how the new product works. Uh, and so there will be a slower buildup of assets in the discretionarily managed and in the professionally managed accounts. And I think you will see this continue to grow throughout the coming year. So, kind of an out of the gate with the self directed. And then over time, you will start to see more of the advised assets uh, having an allocation to Bitcoin. Uh, in many of these portfolios.
4: What t- what are your fees? Is there a fee war?
5: Uh, well, our fees right now are zero, so I don't think you can beat that. Um, well, you yeah,
4: you do, actually but could, <laughs> but I won't go into that.
5: <laughs> well, we believe that you know we want these early investors who, who come alongside us in our new ETF offering to really get the 100% full benefit Uh, of movements in Bitcoin. We think we're coming up to an important period fundamentally in the Bitcoin market with the upcoming halving event where the supply is going to tighten uh, systematically. This happens through an algorithm and it's coming right at a point where these new ETFs are creating demand in the marketplace. And we think it's gonna be an exciting period for Bitcoin. So we want our investors to get the full benefit of any price movements that might result and we're not taking any fee. We believe in the long-term nature uh, of this opportunity and we're willing to uh, be in it for the long haul. So we're going to wait and take our fees later down the road uh, as the product becomes more established. I have a
4: host of like wacky questions. Um, you guys have ESG <laughs> offerings, I would imagine, right? Okay, so mm-hmm. how does this conflict with that because in order to generate this stuff, you have to run computers which take gazillions of tons of electricity or gigawatts or whatever. That's in sort of in direct conflict, I would imagine, with the environmental goals of, of the company.
5: You know, intuitively, uh, it would seem to be. But what's been kind of very exciting uh, about this is that a lot of clean energy uh, launches have been held off because there has not been a clear use case for them. And what we're seeing is a lot of these Bitcoin miners that have relocated from Russia or from China are relocating into areas and they are using clean energy incentives that are being offered by the government to build their mining facilities. So actually, it turns out that Bitcoin mining is starting to be a use case for introducing clean energy technology. Uh, and of course, not all Bitcoin miners are at that point. But we're seeing a very positive trend in this movement towards cleaner, uh, uh, cleaner uses of energy uh, for Bitcoin mining, which we think is a great thing to see.
1: And Sandy, you mentioned kind of taking the long-term view. Eric Balchunas, our Bloomberg Intelligence analyst, coined it the Cointucky Derby, which I'm a big fan of. I enjoy betting on horses. JT, I don't know about you. No? Little pun for you?
4: Well, I'll go back to my wacky questions, but it's just like, I go to the barbershop, that's Topic du jour of people who can't afford to lose money and who don't know what they're talking about. I don't even know this, what, what a Bitcoin is. I can't explain it.
1: No, well, Sandy, I'm guessing, I'm just wondering, Coin Tucky Derby. use your pun, whatever pun you want. There are nine new spot Bitcoin ETFs. How does the race for money impact kind of success and whether or not people are going to be pulling out of it?
5: Yeah, so I look at it this way. There's two sets of offerings that are coming to market through these nine, uh, I think it's even 11. Um, One set is coming from firms that have been digital natives and have kind of grown up in the crypto space. One set is coming from traditional asset management firms. I think Franklin Templeton is a little unique in that we're actually both, right? We have been active and operating in the digital crypto native space since 2017. Uh, We operating across five different public blockchains. We do our own node verification. Uh, We really understand and are a part of the ecosystem, create our own research on individual coins, including Bitcoin and put together portfolios of multi-coin portfolios through separately managed accounts that we can work with investors to access. So we've been in this space for a long time and really understand it, yet we are also a 75-year-old asset manager who is trusted and who has been there for clients through many market regimes. So I think it's the coming together of the crypto natives and the traditional financial services really epitomized by Franklin Templeton that I think is creating the excitement uh, about what's going to happen. And I don't know if it's going to be a derby and some aren't going to finish the race. I just think it's going to be a long race, right? It's a new asset class. Some of your questions are showing. People have yet to kind of start to understand it. Uh, But once they do, I think it's hard not to get excited. I saw that in my own career. When I had my aha moment, it's like my eyes opened and I really saw this new opportunity and potential.
1: Sandy, this may be a dumb question. Bitcoin trades 24-7. If the token crashes on Saturday and Sunday, do I wake up Monday morning with a huge loss on my ETF?
5: Well, the good news for you is if the token crashes on a Saturday or Sunday, we've got portfolio managers and traders trading it on a Saturday and Sunday and working to keep the spread between the Bitcoin index and what's happening in the ETF in line. So, uh, we operate 24-7 in these markets, just like the markets operate. So, uh, it would be like any market. You know, If there's a move over the weekend, you'll see that move reflected, but the fact that uh, the ETF is closed and the market is open isn't going to be a problem in this case because we're running a 24-7 trading desk around this.
4: You, uh, you mentioned the next big step uh, that, that includes derivatives uh, with respect to Bitcoin.
5: Uh, that's a lot of people are looking already at derivatives. I think that you know building the education and understanding of the opportunity is more important as a next step than really thinking about the next product evolution. Um, I think a lot of people have yet to really internalize. We've been in a period where we're used to platforms being the way of the economy. Network effects are, are built around platforms like Amazon or Uber uh, or Airbnb. And now what we're seeing in the crypto domain is that uh, we're seeing protocol based networks, right? Where anyone peer to peer can access it. Just like when you type HTTP into your browser, that's a protocol, everyone in the world can use that to access the internet. And these networks that are being built like Bitcoin are protocols that anyone in the world can use and everyone can participate in. So it's different than a company owning the platform. This is all of us collectively owning these new networks. And this is a new way to access that ownership. So it's an education process. And I think that that's where the focus should be um, to really help investors understand why this can be an important opportunity for their portfolio.
1: Sandy, i got to ask about the Franklin Templeton X profile. You've got laser eyes on Ben Franklin, I would say. She's some, not
4: in the marketing department, I just, just to make it clear. I
1: just want like, it, some of the it's more weird. absurd <laughs> tweets that I've seen, even a tweet saying the lawyers won't let us or respond to comments, but we hear you posting about the 60, 40 plus Bitcoin. What What is the
5: marketing plan? Like, what's going on? Well, this is really, you know, as I said, we really are part of the crypto native uh, ecosystem as well as being a traditional asset manager and our uh, analysts, interns, employees that are in the digital asset unit really understand what matters to people in that community. And the laser eyes was an important signal to them that we stand with them in believing in the future of Bitcoin.
4: All right, Sandy, thanks uh, for stopping by. I appreciate it. Sandy Call, head of digital asset and investor advisory services at Franklin Temple. Did I sound too skeptical? Uh, you know. Or was I too harsh?
1: Talking to the youth.
7: You're listening to the team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Well, let's make a deal. Uh, What's the outlook for M&A in 2024, Bailey? Our next guest, Mitch Berlin. He's vice chair of America's Strategy and Transactions with Ernst & Young. And I got to say, I think he wins the prize for the coolest looking office on Zoom today. <laughs> are you looking to question? What are all the ribbons in the background? They're actually dog show ribbons. Oh, Ooh, dog show. Oh, cool. I'm now even more you're... interested. All yeah. right, we've just, in. changed. In. <laughs> we've just changed the topic. So you're going to get in My trouble My more the accomplished than I am. So, you know, what I'm kind of throwing under their now. <laughs> what what are the dogs? Portuguese water dogs. Oh, beautiful! Those Google are the that. ones that are like hypoallergenic. They don't shed. Right now, I right. that is off. Portuguese. Anyway, okay. So we'll get back on topic. Is um, this oh. an environment right now in 2024 that's conducive to uh, to deal making and kind of what's driving it?
2: It will be. So 2023 was a reset to the pre pandemic deal volume. So if you look well, at major deals, those are those deals that are above 100 million. There were approximately 1250 in 2019 and 1250 in 2023. So we were trying to understand what does M&A look like going from there now that we've reset to pre-pandemic levels. And so we looked at the last 35 years of M&A, and we correlated that to um, information such as GDP growth, inflation, corporate profits, um, the the bond spreads and such. And we did see a correlation. And so if the predictions for those same metrics hold true going forward for twenty twenty four, we should see about a twelve to thirteen increase in MA over the twenty twenty-three numbers. Does the feeling,
1: I, I spend most of my my day job, Mitch, covering the IPO market, and the main sense is that something's got to give. Is that kind of your sense? We have a need for deals. We have cash on the sidelines. We have uh, companies who are kind of nearing the end of their maturity in one sense
2: or another. That's exactly right. I think that we're at a point now where people have been sitting on the sidelines for two years. There are a lot of private companies or portfolios or private equity that are coming to maturity on their debt to refinance would put them in a very different position from an ROI than they are today. So they have to do the math and figure out, should we monetize now, or do we take the risk of refinancing, hoping that we can get a lower rate soon enough that it doesn't impact our ROI calculations?
4: Okay, Um. so who's coming together in 2024? You don't have to name names, but like, well, that would be nice, but um, industries. <laughs> I can name the the industry sectors. The sectors that
2: we're going to see the most activity are the ones where the deal multiples have gone down. Because in in a time where you have a very high cost of capital and high multiples, it's unlikely that you're going to see a significant amount of M&A activity. But if you look at the sectors where the deal multiples have gone down, that includes life sciences and technology. Those deal multiples have gone down about eight points each. And if you look at energy, those deal multiples have gone down about four
4: points year over year. Those are the areas. where I thought where we're energy was continue. pretty much exhausted, like in 2023 with all those deals. Well, we,
2: there's still and there, it may not be the major players, but there's still players out there and they're, they're cost. Of, you know, the cost of capital is high, but the multiples are going down so they can be attractive targets.
1: When you're talking life sciences, we saw a number of deals coming out of JP Morgan um, a few weeks ago. Is that biotech? Are we seeing smaller bolt on deals? Or are we going to see potentially a return of major M&A?
2: You're going to see both. I think the when you look at major M&A, there are still patent cliffs looming, and they'll need to buy an R&D pipeline to continue to turn the profits that they want to turn. So I think you'll see it on both, on both sides and some of the smaller biotech deals as well. What's up with the FTC
1: and some of this antitrust, though? Is that something that's it, – it feels like every deal has some kind of a tie-up. I don't – yeah, just leave it at that
2: yeah no, it's a good question so the new the new guidelines came out it's been 13 years or so since they've come up with uh since they've revised the guidelines the clients that we're speaking to understand that it's going to make things a little bit more difficult and take longer but they're not shying away from deal making because in many choices they really in many cases they really don't have a choice and so more will come under the radar because the threshold of what they consider to be a movement in the consolidation index has tightened so more will come under the radar they're going to require more information, so the timeline to get a deal done is going to take longer. So, more is going to come under their scrutiny, um, but we are, we are working with clients every day to come up with multiple scenarios that they can look at around reshifting the portfolio of the combined entity into something that would be more appealing to the FTC and DOJ.
4: Okay. You want to weigh in on Spirit? I mean, what happened there? It's uh, Maybe you take not specifically, maybe a broader view.
2: Well, my guess is that the way that they shifted the portfolio and the routes may have not been exactly what the what the FTC is looking for. But it sounds like they're going back to the drawing board. From the from what we're reading in the paper, it sounds like they're they're going to go back for another another try at it. So I imagine they're going to have to reshift their portfolio into something that's more appealing. Well, looking at iRobot, that's
1: coming from Europe. Uh, is that, are they more stringent typically? Like what's to read from one of the biggest technology companies not being able to buy the maker of a robotic
8: vacuum?
2: Yeah, so I can't I speak on behalf of the FTC but I, or the the European regulators on that one. I think the concern was around having a market dominance and being able to shut other players out because the, you know, the buyer that has such a significant marketplace that they can control um, who's competing with their own products. And I think that there is some sensitivity around that.
4: Okay, so 2024 overall, you think is going to be a pretty hot year for M&A? Can we say that? We do. We think again, you know, 12
2: to 13 percent increase, which would be nice because the last you know, over the last two years, M&A has gone down 30 to 40 percent, depending on what sector you're looking at.
4: Uh, and M&A is not just for the big guys. You can have much smaller, ca- even uh, businesses you've never heard of, right?
2: Right, and we would, and and I mean, how does
4: that work? How is that different in terms of funding or whatever uh, than the big deals? Well, the smaller deals are easy
2: to get funded. And sometimes you can fund them off balance sheet, but you probably will see a pickup in some of those smaller deals because, quite frankly, they're also coming up with maturities on their debt that they're trying to figure out how to refinance. And often, again, it's the cost of capital is too expensive for them now. They they struck these deals five years ago when. You know, the cost of capital is almost free, and now they're paying five, six percent. That's a very different economic scenario for them. Is that
4: is that one of the bigger drivers um, behind these some of these deals? That you know, we got a big uh, debt coming up, or whatever, and <laughs> this is the way we we can fund that. It, that it, it will be for sure. They need to exit. They need to
2: get. They need to refinance that debt, and to to increase that interest rate by four or five percent is significant. What's
1: going on with private so equity?
2: Private using, equity. Yeah.
4: Do we call yeah, it private
2: equity anymore, though? PE. Or, <laughs> yeah, do we
4: still call it that? It, because if it's we kind of morphed we, into we, something else.
2: <laughs> <laughs> if we change the name, we'd have to change a lot of thought leadership. So we'll continue to call it private equity. But they're they're in a in a difficult position right now because again, their deals are leveraged. They were you know those that were struck five years ago, they were probably hoping to monetize by now, but they're coming up with the same maturity cliffs, and so they have to do the math to say, should you know. Should we lower our valuations and try to sell these portcos now? Should we refinance, hope that we can get refinance for a lower uh cost of capital in a year or two and keep the valuations high? You have to go, you know, you have to go portco by portco and really do the math to see what makes sense, whether you move now or hold on it.
4: Okay. The question everybody's been waiting for, how many dogs and what are their names?
2: No, oh, so I have five dogs. Oh my gosh. They are <laughs> So we got Luke, Tiki, Greta, Berta, and Irma. Yes. All right. So if you want a dog, I can ship one over to you right away because I have too many. I will take any and all dogs I googled I didn't you know what to You
4: didn't have a snow shovel yet? you getting a dog? Inside. <laughs> Good lord. All right. I uh, will leave it there. Mitch Burland, vice chair of America's Strategy and Transactions with Ernst and Young. I don't think he's ever going to come back with us well, for that. The
1: real question is would you rather have a dog or a shovel? I'd rather have a dog.
4: Uh how about you get a dog that you train to uh, shovel you out or something like that?
7: You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
4: Let's take a deeper dive into these risk assets. Skylar Weinand is CIO at Regan Capital. Um, Let's start you off with uh, the bubble question. Does this feel like a bubble to you?
8: it sure does with stocks back to all-time highs short end rates up 500 basis points in the last 2 years long end rates up 250 basis points you do the math on where stocks should be given that rise in rates stocks theoretically should be down upwards of 40% over the last 2 years wow
4: <laughs> so we're <rabid>. I know. <laughs> you just took uh, bailey's breath yeah away. no
8: so what breaks then,
1: Skylar? I'm just looking. You know, we've got the for the swaps pricing in just under six rate cuts next year or this year. We've got a lot of analysts and strategists talking up 2024 earnings and looking into 2025. What happens?
8: You have to look at leverage first, and the most levered players out there are going to break first. We've already seen that in banks. Then it goes to private equity and, and very leveraged companies. The last folks to lose will be the least levered companies, companies that are using a half a turn or maybe over only a turn of leverage. So I think the market's gonna be really bifurcated. Uh, You hear a lot of uh, folks talk about, let's stick to high quality, I like that. Um, But look to leverage to break before anything else.
1: All right, two questions then off that Skylar. Going back to your initial point, are you shorting the market? And then are you shorting some of these levered stocks? How are you playing that?
8: I think, you know, we're not stock guys, but, but in my stock investments, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's one of two things. A, sometimes the only way to win is not to play and, and to wait it out and, and maybe stick in mid to high single digit uh, income plays. But B, own the entire market as well, where I don't know when the next Nvidia or Tesla or Monster Beverage is gonna come along. So I wanna own them all
4: who's uh, who's most over leveraged is that the right phraseology
8: definitely banks um you know banks are are, are government-sponsored hedge funds so to speak uh allowed up to 12x leverage now what's happened over the last year you, you're years, talking
4: the majors or uh, regionals or what or just well, the, the entire all banks industry are
8: allowed the same leverage uh but regionals and community banks got a ton of cash in post COVID, post PPP, right? So folks got all this cash, they parked it at the banks, banks sat there for eight months, what are we gonna do? Okay, let's go out and start buying treasuries and mortgage bonds. What's happened is Which was a, a lot of those bonds are down upwards of 20 points, right? And so if you were levering that up 10 times, 12 times, your effective equity uh, now is sit- went from 10% down to about 4%. So you're upwards of 25X leveraged. So what you have to look at is you have to look at tangible book value, tangible equity, right? And if that percentage is at only 4 or 5%, divide 4 into 100, that's 25X. So you're 25X levered. So moves like we've seen since the start of the year, the bond market's down a point, point and a quarter. Multiply that times 20 for a regional bank or a community bank. That owns treasuries and mortgage bonds
4: so who's um who's least uh leverage then on the opposite uh, end of the spectrum
8: jp morgan the big guys the big guys who had a lot of money they took it in um they focused on on fee paying product product like credit cards um they weren't immediately incentivized to go out and buy really really long duration paper um and so on the flip side of the large guys, B of A, you'll see, has huge amounts of, of unrealized losses sitting on their balance sheet. JP Morgan looks like a genius because they didn't really go and invest in all, that, all, all of that money into you know, Fannie 2, Fannie 2.5 coupon paying mortgages, which two years ago, the market thought everybody was gonna refinance. And something like 70% of all, of, of all mortgages have been issued in the last two years. So now the market thinks nobody's ever gonna refinance again. Nobody's ever gonna move. Everybody's stuck in these 2.5% coupon mortgages. So it's who owns that stuff and who doesn't? And JP Morgan stuck really short duration, um, and now they, you know, they're, they're coming out ahead of everybody. You know, The time to own money markets and T-bills, honestly, was when rates were zero, not when rates are at five and a, five and a quarter, five and a half. Well, Skyler, we've talked a lot about what you don't like. What do you like? So now there's two sides of the coin in terms of equities and in terms of real estate, most things. It's do you want to be the equity holder or the lender? Now is a great time to be a lender, Okay, And you can be a lender on real estate. You can be a lender to equities, i.e. bonds. you can be a lender to municipalities. So now is as good of a time as ever to lend. The market's been hoping, savers have been waiting for five plus percent yields on high quality fixed income for what, 16 years now? And it's here. We should be jumping into this like Scrooge McDuck.
4: Okay, um, I've always been told you don't fight the Fed, but certainly the bond market has been fighting the Fed, or so it would seem. Your impression got about a minute left.
8: Yeah, the market, the The Fed has been saying for the last two years now
4: but we that haven't been listening. there's going to
8: be a lot of pain, right? And we've seen pain. Bond market was down 13% last year, came back the last two months of, or I'm sorry, 2022, came back the last two months of 2023 to make it a positive year. And the Fed is still saying rates are only going to drop two to three times this year. Yet the market has priced in Six drops this year and eight drops over the next 18 months. So it's a really good time to sit in floating rate paper that'll hugely benefit from the Fed, uh, uh, what's the Fed saying happening versus what the market is saying. If you're in fixed rate paper right now, what you're along is rates dropping seven, eight, nine times over the next 18 months.
4: All right. We'll leave it there. Skyler Weinand, the CIO at Regan Capital.
7: You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
4: Ah, they always told me don't fight the Fed. But... It looks like somebody's fighting the Fed, at least the bond market is. Uh, Will the markets and the Fed interact with uh, how they're going to interact in 2024? Hans Olsen is CIO at Fiduciary Trust Company, joining us now, I think, from Boston uh, to discuss. So uh, the market, uh, as I said, the bond market, at least, is is fighting the Fed. Does this set us up for some kind of disaster now?
6: Um, You know, I do think that this market is... Certainly overbought and overconfident, and I think you see it—the uh, overbought um, uh, uh, view when you look at sort of the the S and P's RSI, right? The relative strength. It it has had one heck of a run. Uh, and it's corrected a bit from that, but it, now it looks like it's making another run to uh, a real overbought position. And the overconfident bit is is really clean, clearly seen when you look at the difference between what the market expects for rate cuts and what the Fed is telegraphing. And so far, the economy is suggesting that perhaps the Fed is more right than, than is the market.
1: We were talking about it this morning. What do you make of the University of Michigan sentiment data, and how does that kind of impact your view on the path forward for markets and also the Fed?
6: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, I tend to focus on what people do versus what they say, and and especially in markets, right? You, you follow the money, and um, without a doubt, I mean, it was a, it was a good read. I look back at what happened in uh, with retail sales in December, and that was pretty good. If you look at what's happening at um, with um, excuse me with uh, employment, that's also quite good. So, people, I think, are in. in Pretty good uh, rude economic health at the moment. Uh, you know, housing looks like it is going to be just fine, with the exception of today's numbers. But uh, I think if you look forward to permits and the like, that all suggests that the economy is in rude health. So if that is the case, then one has to rethink sort of the timing and the extent of the interest rate cuts. And as you know, uh, you know that 16% run toward the, in the end of 2023 was uh, powered in in large part by expectations around rates. It wasn't powered by earnings.
4: Um, so we are headed for soft landing, no landing, hard landing, and uh, which one of those scenarios do you think it's going to be, and what is that going to mean for uh, risk assets?
6: Yeah, John, that's a that's an interesting question because. Um, if if I had told you last year at this time that um, uh, that we would have interest rates where they were uh, without some sort of resetting of economic activity or certainly the market, we thought it'd be bark- barking mad. But that's exactly what happened. So last year, in many respects, was a year of no landing. Because um, we didn't hit the Fed's target, and market was fine, and the the economy was fine, I think in many respects there's a good chance that this year is going to be year a year of of either a softish landing or indeed possibly no landing. Maybe a go-round, right, where, where we don't hit that Fed target. Uh, the economy is actually stronger uh, than, than people are are giving it credit for right now. Uh, and and the markets can uh, do pretty well with that. I think, though, the way that you make money in that environment is different than the way that you made it last year. Returns last year were all driven by uh, multiple expansion. And it really happened in Q4 uh, on the belief of rate cuts. So really, that powered it. And it was not powered, was not assisted at all by earnings. This year, I think it has to be assisted by earnings. So, and, and it's—I'm not sure that we can expect much on the multiple expansion front. So, this is the year where I think stock picking really starts to matter. Uh, a, a focus on profits is probably the way to go here. So, and you get away from necessarily incredibly high valuations, but more to. You know, high quality, profitable companies being the, um, the prominent um, feature that people should be emphasizing in uh, their equity portfolios. This year.
1: Yeah, Hans, let's stick on that note in terms of what areas you do like. You mentioned profitability, um, maybe lower multiples. What areas, industries or sectors are you liking for 2024 when it comes to the equity market?
6: Yeah, I I think it's important, because it'd be easy to talk sectors, but even within each sector, there are companies um, that have these features of what you would want this year. So, um, you know, even some of the the, the higher-valued sectors, um, uh, you would find companies that are incredibly profitable, really good allocation of capital, uh, and which will drive some nice returns. I think from a a sector standpoint, at this juncture, you know, software, banks, oil and gas, um, computers, those would be um, uh, areas that we can see companies living in that have the features that we want. And and you can see that if you drill down into companies like an Exxon Mobil, a Berkshire, uh, and Nvidia and the like, these are these are companies that, um, you know, they should have the wind at their back because the, the the earnings are there and they're likely to grow. Um, so, so I think that's how I would come at it, uh, rather than just sort of do a, you know, the the, the, the passive S and P five hundred exposure.
4: If we agree we're in a, a disinflationary environment, what does that do to earnings and sales?
6: Yeah, that's that's an interesting question because it's disinflationary to what, right? So if you if we went from nine to three, um, I think we've seen that largely play out. If it goes from Uh, uh, you know, three down to where it had been um, for the last uh, uh, five or six years. That'd be another case. But I don't think that that's going to happen. I think it's really going to be now about um, um, margins and earnings growth. And to the extent that your cost of goods sold has some mixture of fixed in it versus floating. Right. So, uh, you're not as susceptible to your input costs rising as much um, if you've hedged um, some of your inputs and the like. You can actually, interestingly, see your earnings rise uh, uh, in an environment where there is a bit higher inflation. So the details will matter in an environment like this.
4: Hans, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Uh, s- I-, I was going to say snowy Boston, but not yet. It's on its way, Hans. <laughs> I bet he has a shovel. Hans Olsen, CIO (laughs) of Fiduciary Trust Company, joining us from
0: Boston right now.
7: You're listening to the tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Bubble
4: or no bubble, that's kind of the question it raises for me. Brian Veddig is the president at MJP Advisors. He joins us now from, where are you, Connecticut? Uh, Westbury, Connecticut, John. Westbury, oh, lovely, uh, to discuss the outlook for the market. So, what say you when I say, oh my gosh, maybe a bubble?
3: Well, I, I don't think that's necessarily true, John, when considering all parts of the market. I mean, we look back at last year, we know that majority of the gains came from mega-cap tech. And we did see a broadening out in, in the market at, uh, in the fourth quarter. But really, when you look at areas like small-cap stocks, some uh, value-oriented sectors like healthcare and industrials. I really think there's some other parts of the market that, again, you know, to the points that, that you and Bailey mentioned about you know, earnings growth you know, in, in 24. I think the, I think the market's going to come back to fundamentals and we're looking at some earnings numbers over the balance of the year that can help those areas play a little bit of catch up, while at the same point in time, I still think there's that longer-term trend with AI innovation that, that is going to play out in, in aspects of the technology sector.
1: Yeah, I wanted to ask. Uh, talking about the catch up trade has been something I feel like has been top of mind since really the October bottom. Second best performer in the S P five hundred is Nvidia up seventeen percent. Obviously, that coming after the TSM number. So when you look at that broadening, what areas are going to are we going to see strength broadening out to, and what does that mean for the likes of an Nvidia, which still seems to be red hot?
3: No that's a great point Bailey I think on the Nvidia side of the house I'll just address that that first I mean it's that expectation of growth moving forward so when you look at the forward PE for Nvidia as much as the share price has had a nice run the forward uh, price to earnings ratio is actually quite reasonable um, you know with a 20 handle or so but when we talk about the other areas of the market let's just be fair when we take a look at that disparity of return going back to the S&P versus, let's say, the even weight S&P, for example. We know that a market cap S&P, 40%, is in those those magnificent seven names or so. And and when we look at an even weight, and we really strip that out, we see that the the forward price-to-earnings ratio of the market is actually quite reasonable in some sectors under their historical average. So healthcare, small caps, mid-cap stocks, um, looking at some areas in the industrial complex, I mean, the, these are things that we know that there's some, some breadth and some trends there, and the outlooks for growth are actually looking quite promising.
4: Okay, since you guys brought up AI, i got to ask, when does it start to gel in terms of the sales, well, we've already seen that, you mentioned NVIDIA, but uh, along with the productivity gains that are promised by this, uh, this new technology, when does it all come yeah, together? I mean- yeah
3: no i think i think it's all that's a great question it's almost like when does it come together where we start to see you know market expectations on on rate cuts line up with reality from the fed right so there's so i think the the ai trend is a five to seven year trend i mean there, there's a there's a high multiple of sales that's being put on a lot of these companies right now which we are a little wary of and you have to be selective i think it's looking at it from that productivity point which is why We like areas in in technology that are focusing on workflow management, data management, um, thinking about how AI might create uh, more productive uh, outcomes when you think about cybersecurity. Um, You know, things of that nature than just saying, hey, we're gonna invest in, you know, a certain aspect of." of hardware that's probably going to be used because, you know, AI is going to be coming. I think I think it's a longer term trend, so will there be volatility in the space? Will there be the natural winners and losers kind of play out over the next 5 to 7 years? Yeah, we think so. But don't forget that again. This is a point I'm trying to make. Going back to Bailey's questions, don't forget about some of those other areas that have stable balance sheets, predictable cash flow, margins that look strong, and there's still innovation. And that's why I want to remind people about healthcare because uh, healthcare did not perform well last year, but it's one of those those areas of the market where you're concerned about economic. Uh, expansion this year can be defensive, but we know there's a lot of innovation coming from healthcare companies as well that that, that could be supportive for growth moving forward.
1: But where in healthcare do you particularly like, are we talking biotech, med tech, that seems to be where innovation would be versus something like managed care?
3: Uh, Great point. I think to be selective in healthcare, we are looking at areas of some of the biotech, some of the big pharma space areas, because the big pharma companies they're building out, they're going out and acquiring other companies right now and building out their pipeline for new therapies and and drugs. And I think as rates change, we might see a little bit more in that M&A space from healthcare. And I also think at the same point in time, we have a demographic shift that we know that is going to continue to play out in the United States. The baby boomers, they're not getting any younger. There's still demand for uh, services and, and care that that's out there so even looking at some of the the larger uh, healthcare networks healthcare providers insurance providers i know they've had a rough week this week when considering uh, uh concerns around medicare costs but those that can execute and move through that i think also are areas of healthcare that makes a lot of sense bail
4: yeah and i gotta i'm not a brown nose but i gotta point out the bosses the big bosses uh editorial today the healthcare system, he writes, is more short-staffed than ever, even as it faces its next big shock and aging population. So, uh, tackle that one from an investment perspective, since you brought up the healthcare industry.
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there is there is a concern around, let's say, investing in let's say hospitals that are trying to run their staffs at certain margins, but we have a labor shortage. And we also have issues in quality of care, which might suffer, which then that that then causes um, demand shifts around that space. I'm focusing more on the ways to deliver the care and helping to, to support productivity, whether that might be software and technology in the healthcare space. Again, the insurance providers, um, you know, helping to provide a wider network or better products or policies that people can take advantage of. so I'm um, I'm not focused so much on the labor side. I'm looking more at the solution side to try to get through some of these problems John.
4: all right Brian, thanks a lot. We'll leave it there president at uh, MJP advisors from lovely Westport can I think that's isn't that where Martha Stewart lives I don't, Westport uh, you're not know. that demographic I'm not you're from to... California yeah, I'm a California know? kid.